If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnhem. And me, William Derumple. Is that your attempt at bringing a half-arsed <laughs> pause back into the proceedings, is it? I thought we'd, I thought we'd dealt with it's that. It's quite a good pause, that one. That was a good... You've done considered. better. You've done better. Anyway, um, listen, since it, we're, we're very privileged. We have a very special guest here today who brings together so many threads of, of what we've been talking about in this series and actually asks the question, what was Empire all about? And was it as bad as some people say? I mean, I think you can you can kind of boil it down because we are in the middle of something of a war zone, particularly in Britain, about, you know, the, the battleground is people who don't want you to talk about it at all and people who want to dig up things from the past and put it front and centre on the table. And I think you know, anywhere in the world, people want to think well of their ancestors. You, you don't grow up imagining that your, your ancestors were monsters. And there is a long process of education which hasn't yet taken place in Britain, about what empire means. Mm. That to rule another people in any period of history means the use of violence, uh, oppression. And the British did this as much as any other empire in history. Anyway, we have an incredibly special guest, as I said. You'll know her name if you, if you listen to the news or read any newspapers, and you might be scratching your head as to why. But if I say the name Caroline Elkin to you, it will definitely resonate for those of you who are interested in imperial history. Uh, not only is she a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, she's a professor at Harvard University, but the reason you will have heard of her is because she gave special evidence at the Mau Mau trial. Now, William, this was this was seismic. This was game changing. And your experience with the British government, their evasions, hiding evidence, and the pressure put on you to basically drop your case and, and shut up, in a sense, confirmed all your worst opinions mm. <laughs> about the, about the people uh, you were writing about well, let's, and, and let's... how the that the, there was more than a uh, an accidental lack of evidence that there was uh, a, a serious story which was being actively covered up so shall we shall we shall we go right back to the beginning Caroline do you mind because there's some people who will maybe it'll they, they will have heard Mau Mau Rebellion but they won't be able to pin it to what it actually was so take us right back to to what this situation was all about absolutely first of all thank you for having me I mean such fun um, getting to, to nerd off about empire if you actually want to hear about all this and and you know look I think if we go back so often um, people hear the word Mau Mau and they sort of recoil and they remember their grandmother perhaps or somebody of an older generation Mau Mau the most horrible 
horrible, savage thing that never happened. And, you know, let's unpack that a little bit, right? Because the 1950s, the Mau Mau uprising was an uprising largely by the Kikuyu, the largest ethnic group in Kenya, against British colonial rule. And it was both an anti-colonial uprising and it had civil dimensions as well. And the way in which they you know, murdered and attacked uh, Europeans and other Africans was, was bloody. There was no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, 32 Europeans in total died in this. It lasted from 1952 to 1960. Many will say it accelerated independence when it started. Um, the idea was that, you know, they were going to still be in, in Kenya for another generation, if not more. But in response to this rebellion, the British, it was sort of two-pronged. One, there were guerrillas in the forest, and they sent the military out to track them down. And that was more or less taken care of by 1954-ish or so. But then there was another aspect, the civilian dimension of the war. And all members of Mau Mau took an oath, pledging themselves to the movement itself, right? And there were seven gradations of oath. And it was estimated about 90% of the one and a half million Kikuyu took that oath. And what I was interested in was were those people this what was considered to be the civilian war that the, the that the government waged against Kikuyu, known as the hearts and minds and in order to break them and then to sort of get them to confess their oaths and real you know sort of realign themselves with empire pledge themselves and they literally would have to see sing, sing god save the queen and all this stuff they set up a whole series of detention camps and um detain nearly the entire Kikuyu population that's what i was interested in writing about caroline take us Back one stage even before that, the Second World War is over mm. and Kenya is almost a white settler colony. You have large areas of land being given over to British people to farm, even as the British are leaving India and Pakistan and what will be Bangladesh. And the whole imperial administration is packing up. You have the non-aligned movement. You have a post-colonial world beginning to emerge in South Asia, but that's not happening in Africa. In fact, there's even a shift towards Africa and that colonialism, in a sense, is beginning again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, William. They're doubling down in Africa, right? This is where imperial resurgence is happening. They're going to rebuild Britain off the back of empire, and it's going to happen in places like Kenya. So you have, you have Africans who have fought in World War II thinking they're going to come home, believing in the Atlantic Charter and the rest, and come to find out not only is life not getting better, it's getting worse. And it's an absolute pressure cooker. It was, you know, to mix metaphors, you're just waiting for a match to be dropped into this, ready to explode. And there's, a, there's an economic imperative for this, because you, you, you've got to remember that Britain was brassic, it broke, you know, after the war, needed money. So this was a solution to filling that post-war gap in the coffers. Yeah, oh, entirely. Financial crapper, right? And and look, everybody, had, there's this idea that somehow after World War II, there's this gradual evolution to decolonization. Not at all. This is one of the most violent periods of, of colonial rule, um, often known as the second colonial occupation. And Kenya was a shining example of this. It happens elsewhere, but if we stick with Kenya, um, this is a, a place, as I said, where they are just doubling down on colonial rule and really just squeezing African labor for all they can, obviously for export crops. Key, why tea, why is Kenya important, specifically Kenya? Why, why is that an area that is the the center of British concerns. Why are there more white people there than there are, say, in Ghana? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there, there are two things to that, right? First, they had decided much much earlier on, earlier in the in the 20th century, that it was going to be settlers who were going to make this this land productive, right? In Ghana, they chose to use peasant production, right? Whereas here, they use they, they use settlers. Quite controversially, actually, um, they were terrible. By the way, they were terrible farmers until World War II. Um, just just horrible. 
But post-World War II, getting back to the point that was just made about the economy, they are pumping money with the Colonial Development Welfare Act into the colonies. Kenya is not alone. And that money is being used to ramp up exports. And of course, some everybody looks at the export numbers. Never forget that the game, the long game that they're playing on the economy and empire is all about monetary policy. They are basically screwing these colonies by, ha- by having a lock on the way in which monetary policy is being manipulated in the sterling zone. And it's a genius move, by the way. It works quite effectively until these colonies start rebelling. And again, just to get, give a bit of context, the Queen has just been on honeymoon. Oh, yes, treetops. Yeah. So the tree famous treetops thing, hearing about she her hears, father she dying. She hears she's queen. Yeah. Yep, she goes up the tree of princess and comes down a queen, nice. right? Um, the nice. famous in, in 19, uh, 1952. And of course, that's just before the start of this Mau Mau state of emergency. Right, so when you say, so look, now going forward again to mm-hmm. the point that we started... So the British are faced now with a a Kikuyu population that's had enough. Mm -hmm. They've said, right, that's enough. We've seen other countries now shake off British rule. We'd quite like a bit of that as well. You said that they were rounded up. Do we know numbers of how many were rounded up and put into these camps? Yeah, you know, look, if you take the, it's a great question. The the British have always reported that it was approximately 70 to 80,000 that were detained. Now, way back when, when I started this work, I, you know, you kept seeing the that this is a, a daily average figure. And remember, this figure had been used by historians, eminent historians, over and over and over again. Think about it. What's in a daily average figure? Well, what it doesn't tell you is how many went into the camps in any given day and how many went out. So you have to figure out the intake and release rates. And once you figure that out, you figure out that the number is about two to four times the amount in the detention camps. But those camps were mostly for men. And they thought, the British, that the most strident adherents of, of Mau Mau were the women. And in fact, they created what were barbed wire villages, emergency villages, 24-hour guard, forced labor, starvation tactic. These were all detention camps in name. So if you put together the number of women and children in these villages and the number of men in the camps, you find out that not, it wasn't 70 to 80,000. It was nearly the entire Kikuyu population of 1.5 million that were detained either in a detention camp or in an emergency barbed wire village. And where in Kenya is this? I mean, people who have seen films like White Mischief and so on are familiar with sort of Happy Valley. Where, yeah. where are we? Do- and and, and holidaymakers today may have gone to Lamu. Mm-hmm. Give us a bit of geography. Yes. So the Kikuyu, um, they lived in resorts. Reserves, right? So when we think about the, you know, the British would, when the uh, colonization first happened, they would sequester different ethnic groups into reserves. So if you go north from Nairobi up towards Mount Kenya, um, that's where the Kikuyu reserves are. That's where we have these emergency villages. Kikuyu actually don't live in villages. They live in scattered homesteads. So they would round everybody up, burn all their properties, and then put them into these into these barbed wire villages. The detention camps, getting back to if you're a holiday maker in Lamu, you know how hot it is in Lamu in February. And, you know, just the the stench of the humidity. These detention camps, some of the worst are along the coast, and they're dotted all over the country. There's about 100 of them in total. And and people are being moved from camp to camp, depending upon how cooperative they are. They, They had some camps more severe, others less severe. So, I mean, this is so reminiscent of, of Kitchener in South Africa, creating camps, raising places, scorched earth. And then, I mean, why did they think 
that that was okay? Mm. I mean, was there no pushback in Britain? Was this known about? How many people mm -hmm. actually knew that this was going on? What's, mm. the, what's the reporting like at the time? Yeah, I mean, first of all, brilliant point. This is not the first time, and we can have a longer conversation. Starts at the, the turn of the century in South Africa. They move these systems of confinement all over the empire, even even in India and Malaysia. Look back at home. One of the things that's that's as an historian that you're so struck by are the the way in which information is able to flow out of Kenya. You have plenty of people on the left, people who we might be familiar with, Barbara Castle, Fenner Brockway. On the floor of parliament, you have people in the, the, the missionaries who are writing back home um, and, and, and protesting. And what is so stunning is the degree to which the British government has decades of experience of avoiding any kind of culpability. It's a one-off. It's a bad apple that something happened. It's a it's monstrous a, event. It's the a Church monstrous event. You know, it is, but it's yeah. never yeah. anything more than that. And the, the genius of this, if you think about it, they pull that off for eight years. But just clarify this. I mean, is the other investigative journalists? I mean, this is you know only ten this years. This is a before period of journalism. No, but it, and it's also after the yeah. it's after the Second World War, where journalists went into the field in dangerous places where they shouldn't have and couldn't really have gone before. Uh, other nodes, yeah. you know, Don McCullen's out and there taking black and white crazy photographs of, of horrible things going on. Why? Why was this not better known at home? Yeah. First of all, it was it was there was there was plenty of information at home for your average Briton to know something was off here. But remember, it's always the response is not just that this is a one-off, but it's a how dare British soldiers would never do something like this. When you say something like that, well, we haven't even said actually. We haven't what even these, gotten into what so that is. What, what were the things? Horrific forms of torture. And in a million years, I have to tell you, when I was doing the research for this, I it's very difficult. I'm not the only person who's done work on colonial violence. Um, I did many, many interviews, several hundred of, of those who had been detained, victims of colonial torture, castrations, mutilation of genitals, sodomy with broken bottles, vermin, rats, dismembering of body parts, tying people to the back of, of jeeps and pulling off, putting uh, wires onto their testicles and turning the batteries uh, on. Who was doing this? I mean, this combination so of British military, mm. colonial officers colonial police officers, settlers who had been seconded into uh, the colonial service in order to try to suppress the movement, other Africans who were, who were also brought into the, into the detention camp system. Um, but this was being directed from the top. Um, this was not a bunch of bad apples. And remember, I think one of the things that's, that's very important is that this is systematized violence. This is not just haphazard. There are logics and reasons for this. There are, when I, I sort of raised the point of the oath before, because it truly was a belief, and it was sort of put forward by Louis Leakey, who was their local sort of ethnographic guru, that the way to break Mau Mau is they had to confess their oath, right? And once they had confessed their oath, they'd be in this liminal state, and then they would be reintroduced to British civilization. This is Leakey who, who found the Louis early bones, oh, yeah, the bones of Lucy Leakey. and, mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. these early hominids. Yep. He Nara. was born and raised in Kenya. He spoke fluent Kikuyu, had been raised amongst Kikuyu. Um, and so, but, you know, at the same time, there was a struggle around this insofar as, you know, the first gradation of the oath and each one thereafter, it would always end with, if I reveal this oath to anyone, may this oath kill me. 
So there was a belief, a supernatural belief that a guy would strike down someone if they confessed the oath. So there's a struggle around the confession of this oath. And to this day, of course, you couldn't get out of a detention camp if you didn't confess the oath. But when I was interviewing people, they would say, you know, I, I actually, I never confessed. And to this day, they won't admit to the fact that they had actually broken this oath. And what was the, in a sense, the, the purpose of the torture? Was it to cause people to confess their oath? Was it to extract information? Was it punishment? Or was it a combination of all those? All of the above. All of the above. And look, I think the there is a logic to it. One is around the confessions I just laid out. Certainly one is around punishment. One is just, I mean, you know, you just have people who are just sadists as well. A combination of all of it. And also, you know, the normative frame in this has uh, had always been in Kenya that you knock the, the quote-unquote natives around. Um, it had always had issues around this consistently. But the, but the other narrative that also went out at the time, and, and some people you know, to this day will say, look, actually the Kikuyu were dangerous and trying to kill the white people. They were setting about with machetes. They were, um, they were out for blood, you know, the whole mm -hmm. bloodlust mm -hmm. argument. Now, mm -hmm. what, what was the, 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 the various merits when you went to investigate this mm -hmm. of those accusations? Yeah, look, I think, you know, I think the bottom line, headline is 32 Europeans died in total. In total, you know, we're never going to get a handle on the death figure. There's a lot of controversy around that. But what we can certainly say is that thousands perished. People were tortured. They lost their land. Mm -hmm. The response, the draconian response on the part of the British, right? And in some ways, almost a moral panic, right? You have, you know, always remember the European settlers were a tiny minority relative. And there was always this fear of the night of the long knives, right? That they were going to, you know, coming after because, of course, they were they were living on, on Kikuyu land. They were, they were exploiting their labor. So the jig was going to be up at some point. Mm. Uh, forgive my ignorance. I mean, I, I, I write about India, not about Africa. Who, who are these people out there? Are they, are they colonials who've moved from elsewhere or are they new arrivals from Britain or have they been there for generations and like the French in Algeria put down roots and, and are now resisting a freedom struggle? Yeah, you know, some come out at the, they decide sort of early part of the 20th century, the British do, that they are going to render Kenya profitable. Remember, all colonies had to be fiscally self-sufficient. They claim Kenya, they have no idea how to make this place fiscally self-sufficient. They decide they're going to have far European farmers and they're brought in, much like Zimbabwe or Rhodesia in South Africa. And they come in waves. Um, at different points in time. Some are settlers coming from the UK. Some are coming from other parts of and, Greater and Britain. And you arrive and the government gives you land or what? You arrive and the yeah. government gives you land. Anywhere from, you know, small plots to Delamere, who's got, you know, hundreds of thousands uh, of Delamere acres. being the, 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 Delamere. the guy who, in, in white mischief. Who, Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Same word, Delamere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was come out to God's country, um, you know, free, you know, cheap land, free labor, et cetera, et cetera. And as I mentioned before, they come out, they're terrible farmers. They're horrible. And and so what ends up happening is many of the Africans end up staying on their land and basically sharecropping. Right, right. And that changes and, and accelerates getting, you know, back after World War II. And there's just sort of a, a train wreck uh, waiting to happen. And after decolonization in South Asia, do you get people moving from India to Africa or is this a different bunch? Yeah, you, ha you have some, a few. There's certainly in migrations. We certainly are seeing some coming from different parts of different parts of the empire. Many from South Africa, many from the Rhodesia is coming up as well. Mm. Um, and from, from other parts of, if you will, sort of white settler areas within the empire. Now, you, when you were writing your, your book about this, it has, it has two separate names, doesn't it? In, in America, it is Imperial Reckoning. That's right. And in Britain, it's the British Gulag. Yeah, yes? Britain's Gulag. Right, mm -hmm. Britain's Gulag. Uh, when you wrote your book, 
you had relied on your own research. You'd gone out there, you'd done extensive interviews and you'd come back. Because this is within living memory. This of is course. Not, yeah, this is not 1857 yeah. and the Indian mutiny. This is... But yeah. what, what you didn't have and what I suppose you were attacked for, because you, you I mean, just describe what the reception was to that <laughs> book, because it's hard yeah. to hear. So yeah. what did people say? It was, uh, I like to say, critical acclaim with the emphasis on the critical. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was scathing. And, you know, I was a pretty young historian at the time. And I think I naively thought I was going to get some pushback. It was just, lack of better terms, just a shitstorm. I mean, it was horrible. And I mean, it was prior to all the social media. I mean, and today mm. it would have been, it would have been completely unbearable. ruined my career. I mean, yeah. it would have been unbearable. But it was, it came from the obvious sources on the right, but even on the left where, you know, it was 2005, the Iraq war is going on. And basically many people took this book and said, you know, this book is about Kenya in 1950, but it's really about Iraq now. And it really touched a nerve, particularly since you've got Tony Blair and, and, and Bush cozying up. And it just came and in. Neil the, Ferguson's and, just published a book saying Empire's Wonderful. Uh, oh, and it's fabulous. time to bring it back. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, exactly. And so it was... Um, it and was the book a, is a big bestseller. It was a yeah. huge bestseller. And then he had the whole documentary series and the mm. rest of it. And there had been obviously other books that had questioned Empire. But this book was very kind of in your face. I was I wrote it in a particular way and for a particular reason. Yeah. And I, I mean, I went over some, some of the criticism that you, ha you had at the time. And one of the mainstays of criticism, where are the documents? Where is your proof? Where is your evidence? Now, did you try and get documents? And what was that experience yeah, like? Yeah. You know, look, in the critique, um, it's a great question because the critique came in many different forms. And one of which was, this was all based on oral history. If you take out the oral history, and I had one historian at the time at a big event, launch event, said, you know, Africans make up stories. Basically, they're all liars. And if you take all this out, the entire argument falls apart. It's fiction. Now, of course, I would love to have those four or five years that I spent in the archives back again. And, you know, in fact, yes, there was a huge amount of oral testimony in the book, but there was a massive scaffolding of documents. And of course, at the time, we knew through basically sort of oral tradition, world of mouth with archivists, that many of the documents were missing, if you will, in the Kenya National Archives and also in the UK. And did you start to realize that there was a weeding out. When did that... When that dawn on you, dawn that actually, you. I know there's something that should be here. It's We've not all here. had that experience yeah. of going into an archive and the stuff isn't available, but you don't assume, in a sense, that it's a... You, you assume that the archive has lost it. You don't yeah. assume that there's a systematic removal of documents from mm -hmm. the from the archives? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. My, my sequencing was I did most of my research in the UK first and then in Kenya. And in, in, the, the, in the National Archives? In the National, uh, National Archive, uh, Rhodes House. A lot of time at Rhodes House. Um, in, in Oxford? In Oxford, yes, thank you. And in the public, what was then in the Public Record Office, now the, the National Archive, there were there would be missing, there would be sort of moments where things would be missing, right? You'd sort of be trailing along in evidence. And you sort of, to your point, you're like, oh, God, in Kenya, you could drive a truck, <laughs> literally, through gaps in the archive. The entire police department was gone. The entire Ministry of Interior. There should have been, there should have been three different, I'll give you an example, three different ministries that should have had an individual file on each detainee. Let's even go back to the numbers and say, okay, we agree it was only 70 to 80,000. We know that's wrong, but we'll just say for the, so you should have had about 200, 210,000 individual files on detainees. There's a couple hundred. 
I, I use archives too here, and, and what often happens is I go to an index, and the index is there, and you call something up, and they say it's not available right. or it's mm. lost. Were there indexes or not even indexes? No, not even indexes. I mean, they were just gone. And then you start asking around. At that point, the archivist, the head archivist who was in Kenya, um, had been the archivist. Uh, he, he took over at the t- around the time of independence, and he would be the first to say, we ne- they, ne- they were never transferred to us. We never had them. And of course- Oh, um, right. we, we're all familiar. Anyone who yeah. does this kind of yeah. work. You're familiar with the runaround. It, it, it's they're all held in Britain. No, they're all held in Delhi. Yeah. No, they're all held. Yeah. In, yeah. And yeah, you exactly. do. You're sort yeah. of doing this, this crazy yeah. ping pong yeah. Uh, yeah. of existence. So, so just then going back to to the book comes out. You're being criticised by people who are saying, "Look, where are your documents? Where's your evidence? Not for want of trying." And then, how many years afterwards did everything change? <laughs> and we're going to take a break in a minute, but we we just ought to say, how many years was it when you? stood there and thought, I was right. So what year did the, the, the legal case happen? So the legal case, it was filed in 2009. It So four years after your book had come out. Four years after the book. It settles four years later in 2013. And around 2011, everything changes. Join us after the break to find out how everything changes. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So we left you on a little bit of a, a cliff edge. Um, we're here with Caroline Elkin, who has us just eating out of the palm of her hand, quite frankly. So just before the break, we were talking about all of these things that you had written down through oral history, which people were trying to discredit. You were looking for some factual underpinning. You knew there was stuff missing, but you just couldn't prove it. And then 
law, the good old system of law and governance. And we'll come back to why that's kind of ironic and important as well in a moment. But it starts kicking in. It is this legal firm called Lide, which decides it's going to represent some of the Kikuyu survivors who who gave that testimony that they were tortured. And this right? is independent of, of your book and you. This happens on uh, with, with of its own momentum. Completely independent. Um, and, and in fact, the, the, how it all came about is uh, Martin Day, who's one of the lead, obviously, attorneys in Lee Day, was in Kenya on a completely separate issue related to, there were rape cases by the British military up in the northern part of the country. And the BBC had come across some of my very, very early work and did a documentary called Kenya White Terror. And Martin and his associate had seen it and it was arranged for us to meet. And that's how sort of we came together. And he was interested and he said, you know, look, let's stay, basically, let's stay in touch. Mm. And I didn't think much about it and kind of went on my way. And then Imperial Reckoning comes out and I get the phone call from Lee Day saying, we want to talk to you. And um, we want to talk to you. And not only do we want to talk to you, but we want to really get a sense of, to your point, you know, how much, because in the court, if they were to file something in the court, you have to have documentary evidence, right? You couldn't introduce my oral testimony. So there was a, there was a skeleton of documentary evidence can that I, just, I had within the I book. Just, uh, sorry, pro- probe that one. Why would your oral testimony not have been accepted in court? Because it was not taken under legal process. Got you it. could not cross-examine. You can't yeah. cross-examine it. And also there, there, is, there is a standard of evidence, which a chain of evidence, all of these things, those, those yeah. criteria would not have been met. But there is a marvelous thing in British law, which is discovery, isn't there? It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It is an extraordinary it's power. So those of you who don't uh, watch American procedural dramas as much as I do. Oh, I watch one and order all the time. And that's what prepared me for this case, yeah. by the way. I mean, you know, <laughs> the good wife. I can right. do an A-level in it. But, you know, this <laughs> idea of discovery is that you can challenge the other side and mm-hmm. say, we want, it's, it's habeas corpus for paperwork. <laughs> we yep. want your papers. And if you say, I don't have the papers, and it subsequently comes out that you did have the papers, you are in a whole heap of trouble. You are in a huge heap of trouble. So when is this introduced? Is it like the Freedom of Information Act? Would you, would you like or? me to go to the Bodleian? <laughs> like, Shall I, I go to the... Wait, Google. Um, yes, the Bodleian Online. You carry on chatting amongst yeah. yourselves. I mean, the rules of proceed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this has been there for a while, right? I mean, insofar as discovery, and it's something that, you know, sort of you know, joking aside, we as historians really need to recognize that it was with the weight of the court behind the case and behind documents that we had even the opportunity to push the British government beyond their usual, no, so sorry, we have nothing response. When you, if you try to file something under FOI, Freedom of Information, 95% of the time you get a, yeah, no, sorry, or yes, we have it, but you can't have it because it's not, you know, national security, whatever the case may be. This is different. And I think, you know, what we find in this case is that it's filed in 2009, we've file all sorts of stuff. I am expert witness in the case. I had to write all kinds of statements for the court itself. And then I get a phone call about two years or so in uh, from Lee Day, a wonderful barrister named Dan Leader, who was on point for the case, who said the most extraordinary thing has happened. The British government has admitted to the fact that it has found or discovered in air quotes, discovered 300 boxes of previously undisclosed files. <laughs> look, at, look at his face. Yeah. 300, 300 boxes, boxes of previously undisclosed yeah. file held in the bowels of Hanslope Park, which is where they keep their MI5 and MI6 files. Which is in Northumberland, yep. right? It's Colloquially known as yeah. the uh, Spook Central. Right. And wait for it, for a program on Empire next to these files where 
8,000 other files from 36 other colonies. Similarly, all of these files from now 37 colonies were packed up and spirited away and brought back to Britain at the time of decolonization and held under lock and key until the time and the filing of this case and the demand for document discovery. How far do these documents go back? Far. You know, some, some, you know, you know, I haven't been, I personally am looking for more recent stuff on colonial violence in them, but they span a whole range of things. And look, you know, they make no mistake that one of the things that you should remember is that we as, that is as expert witness, and I was joined by two other historians about a year or two into the case, we had the court behind us because once these are discovered, the British government says, and even the court says, wait, you can't just have them. Mm. We have to review them, the British government, the defendant, the name defendant is the Foreign Commonwealth Office, for both relevancy to the case, what we, we defendant are going to decide whether it's relevant to you, and national security. And so began this war, this sort of kind of, you know, this, this kind of uh, low-level war, because we would look at this and say, because we did have a hand list, and say, well, you know, the file that says, I don't know, I'm going to make this up, torture and detention camps, I believe that would be relevant. And mm. they would say, oh, no, no, not relevant. And so we would be, so began this back and forth uh, through the court of, of demanding releases of files. It was it was really a How process. How did you get the hand list? I mean, that must have been a crucial mo- and a very thrilling moment for you. It was. There were th- actually three separate hand lists created at different points. Some were typed, some were handwritten, and they, they too were dribbled out. And I have to really emphasize this important within this moment where there was no way I could have done this on my own. I put together a research team of students um, at Harvard. There were six of us, uh, six of them and myself, we had this huge war room. Well, they that's worked what I, 24-7. I'm sort of, in my head, you are surrounded by madness. You're surrounded by pins in walls and post-it notes. And, yep. and is that what your life looked like? Yeah, entirely. I mean, if you looked at it, it was, you know, the walls were full of stuff. We were creating databases and spreadsheets and, you know, and it was, you'd sort of be up there. And it was when you step back off this wall and you looked at it that you could see the picture of, of, of what was in these files. And what was so stunning to me was just file after file after file proving imperial reckoning correct. And just to be clear about this, these are files that were sp- originally filed for the colonial administration in Kenya, were held by the police department or, or, the, or the military in Kenya, and then actively removed to hide evidence or... Precisely. And let's be very clear on this. They, at the time, so Kenya, they decolonized in 1963. The process, and Kenya was not alone, but this is the first place we get real insight into this. The process of document destruction or removal begins several years prior to decolonization. This was not a haphazard process. They were systematized in the destruction or removal of documents as they were in the torture and violence committed against bodies in Kenya. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. So so, so, so now you said destruction, and this is something that haunts me because mm-hmm. um, as someone who's gone through a lot of these rather extraordinary things called the IPI files, which is Indian mm-hmm. Police Intelligence files, you've come across massive gaps, and then you sort of try and trace back, and it just says file missing far missing and my my whole thing is oh god do they still exist are they still you know are they in this vault somewhere or as some have suggested there was a great deal of bonfires going yeah. on on, uh, on is exit like, could there be a lot of stuff there from from india or is it post india it's post india but let, let's let's connect these two right because in the kenya case what is so important to the question about files is that for the first time and we can talk about it, why they do this. There's a reason they do this. We get dumped on of documents documenting the document destruction. 
So for the first time, we get the documents that show the intricate nature. I mean, they had lock boxes and strong rooms and they had a W that they would hand each each file had to be gone through by hand where they would stamp those that would stay in Kenya, those that would be removed and brought back to Britain, and then those that were going to be destroyed. But by destroyed, mean burned, shredded. Burned, shredded and burned. And then they couldn't do it fast enough, so they started dumping them into the Indian Ocean. And I was able to construct, based on the files, that they estimated that they had destroyed three and a half tons of documents. They also created what was an emergency destruction plan. Do you know how long it would take if you burned 24-7, how long it would take to get rid of those files? I, I do not. Almost a year. That's how many files we're talking about. That's why they started dumping them. And I'm surprised at this, uh, partly because I spent a lot of time documenting similar stuff in mid-19th century India. And one of the things that always struck me was that how weird it was that this stuff was there still. You could just go to the mm, British yeah. Library, the yeah, old yeah. Office Archives. You could drag up stuff about the, the Army of Retribution in, in 1857 mm. or a different even, even Army not, of Retribution yeah. I mean, even, even up to 1940, you, yeah. you know, 1940, 1947, you can pick up files which say top secret on them not to be read, but you can find those. They mm. are archived. And my impression as a, as a imperial historian working in 18th and 19th century India is that you know, things are missing, but overall, I, I'm getting there. the stuff I need to mm. write the story. And, mm. And rather amazingly, you know, there are miles of it. This, this supposed, I don't know whether it's a, a, an urban myth, but they say there's 35 miles of uh, of Indian material underneath the British Library. Mm. Uh, and there aren't systematic absences. Why is it that, there aren't that, that you don't know about them? No, because I'm, I'm looking at exactly this stuff. I'm looking mm. at the way that the Indian mutiny is suppressed. I'm looking yeah. at the, and I'm getting the material. See, I mean, what, what drives me mad is that I don't know what's not there. Mm. That's the thing. I don't know. You know, I only know those those hand indexes. You don't have those, so you don't know what yeah. else could be there. That's but it's an interesting. It, it, if I'm right, and and the stuff is basically intact in nineteenth mm. century India, what it's interesting is what has changed between okay. then and, 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 yeah. and yeah. very interesting and, question. Nineteen sixties or nineteen fifties. I think that's a really important question, and one of the things I can tell you from my own so because I so. My ne recent book is called Legacy of Violence, and I'm very interested in Kenya not being an exception. And I had it was clear that I dropped into this moment of time, and I'm just I'm raising this for a reason because suddenly, as a result of this case, the documents become a thread in this new book, and we see the beginnings, or at least I do, with 1947 and Red Fort, and they are terrible at destroying. I mean, as I just laid out, it's not, it's actually, you have to be very deliberate and intentional about what you're doing. So Hugh Toy is here. He had been chasing bows and the rest of it. And he's in charge along with some others from MI5 of, of burning documents um, at the Red Fort and, and elsewhere. And in 1947. In 1947, there are fears Back in London, that Independence Day ceremonies are being interrupted by the smog of the burning documents. They then um, move on to, from there, document destruction continues. And just prior to, to Kenya, we have Malaya, the big Malayan emergency. Where, again, there's an insurgency and insurgency, again, Insurgency, same kind of yeah. processes, Very same brutal. kind of extremely brutal. And they become much better. They, they're learning as they go about how to destroy this volume of evidence, what they want to send home. In the case of, 
of, of Malaya, they actually take them from Kuala Lumpur down to Singapore. And from there, they have a special incinerator where they're burning them there. They have Kenya and we can move on. They do the same thing in Cyprus, et cetera, et cetera. And they just get better at it as they go along. Okay, I, I question. So there are going to be people who are going to be listening to this saying, you know what, this is, this is just what happens when countries or armies withdraw. They destroy their paperwork because it mustn't fall into the wrong hands. And it is. It happens all over the world. It happens today. It would happen. Probably happened in Bagram last year. In yeah, Afghanistan. indeed. And yeah, and, yeah. You, and you sometimes when a news crew goes in, you will see the departing army, whether you know even Ukrainian or Russian. There will be there will be a floor full of shredded paper. So you know, Carolyn, one thing that we have omitted in fact, saying. In fact, we know that it did happen, and I rem- I have uh, friends who were in Afghanistan last year, and the last two or three days of the British embassy in Kabul yeah. was exactly this burning stuff. Well, I know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. I think. I think there's there's footage as well of like going in and there's just yeah. paper and 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 machines unplugged and so on. But we've missed out a really important bit of this because the vindication of your work happens now. So we we, we kind of missed the denouement. And we went off on documents because <laughs> because William and I are hungry for paperwork. That's why it's just greedy, greedy from us. But at, at the end of this, when when you have finally got your hands on the paperwork that you suspected existed, but you had no idea in such volumes, 300 boxes of, of evidence. And you're fighting, you're fighting with those very people that you're actually against who have the chance to say, no, not relevant, not relevant. But you win. That, I mean, that we should say the case against those British colonial officers was won. Tell us what happened that day when that verdict came in and did you expect it? Yes, I have to say when I, I said yes to, to being expert witness in the case, Martin was very clear that they couldn't do the case without me. And I felt very strongly that, you know, it's more responsibility on our part as historians to offer our evidence. But I didn't ask them sort of, you know, what are our chances? I only asked that about a year and they're like, oh yeah, nobody in the legal profession thinks we've got much of a shot here. <laughs> and, but I knew we were right. And this evidence comes out and it just was overwhelming. I mean, it just Give was... an example of the sort of thing which you didn't get from oral testimony, but which turned up in the documentation. Yeah, well, I think it was... What I found interesting, and we can have, you know, we can get in a long conversation about this. I'm a pretty good historian, but I'm not that good. In other words, there was nothing that we got that was new in terms of telling us anything. They had my own view. This case was filed in 2009. They fess up finally in two years later that these documents were they existed. I think they were calling between 2009 and 2011. I, I actually don't think we got everything. That would be my, because nobody's that good as an historian. You don't, everything that we got was just more and more confirmation. But the most important thing was, and I, and I did have documents in Imperial Reckoning, but what this is giving us are hundreds and hundreds of pages of confirming tortures, confirming murders, confirming, and, by, and, and who was doing it. Right. And it was, it was either names or it was more importantly, it was the, you know, we were able to demonstrate that were people in the employ of the British colonial Mm. government. And that was crucial to the case. When you get this sort of thing on a movie, you know, a lot of these documents turn up with black, with black lines drawn out of the, were you getting? uh, No redacts. No No redactions. There was, you know, there was, you know, there were a few bits of what they would do is they would hold back entire, entire documents. Um, and, and as a result of winning the case, how many how many people were still alive who were being represented, and what mm-hmm. did they get out of the mm-hmm. 
out to the verdict? Yeah, it was initially, um, it started with a test case, five, five claimants as a test case, five of the strong, what they believe to be the strongest case. And remember, this is a tort claim. This is like a, a big personal injury case. Mm. Um, this is failure of duty of care, a whole range of things that they're being charged with. So it's not the Kenyan claimants against, uh, or it's not the Kenyan government against the British government, it's these claimants themselves. Once it's clear that the case is going to settle, what happens is, is the verdict comes in, um, it comes in as a written approved judgment by the judge. Where were you? I was in my office in, in it was three months after the, there was a series of hearings, a, a big strikeout hearing that we got the verdict. Um, and it was stunning. I mean, it was stunning. What because, did you do? Did you get a phone call? I mean, just I got a phone call. Remember, it wasn't a verdict that the British. What happened is the British government tried to get out of this case by two legal technicalities. One was state succession. What they said is that actually we don't know if this happened or not, but wrong venue. All not legal liability trade. It's not uh, us. Not us. Kenya. You should be suing in Kenya yeah. because they transferred them. The second was statute of limitations. The this is a tort claim. Three years. We needed the judge to waive 50 years that had passed to let the case go forward. And he did, and it was very unusual. That's the verdict that we got back. And we knew that if you waived statute of limitations, the, the evidence at this point was overwhelming. Overwhelming. So, and so just okay. so on the last point, there were yeah. about 5,500 who were finally brought into the settlement. It was a 20 million pound uh, sterling payout. There was an official uh, monument built by the British government to the victims of colonial torture in Nairobi. And I think most importantly, what the claimants consistently wanted was acknowledgement that they hadn't lied that they hadn't lied that, and and the yeah. british government had to offer the best we could get of a, an apology is an offer of sincere regret but it was it was stunning i have to tell you after you know sitting there and seeing all this happen and i was actually in nairobi it was uh, william hague who read that uh settlement into the record of parliament i got to choose to be in london or in nairobi i was with all the claimants in nairobi i've never experienced i will never experience anything like that in my life there was guttural tears crying screams of joy because the same statement was read by the British High Com um, in in Nairobi it was a moment that I don't think anybody could ever have imagined would happen and 20 million as well so this is mm -hmm. underpinned by financial settlement I mean there's a, there's there's almost nothing more in law that you can give other no, than this, this apology and financial mm -hmm. recompense isn't you know that's yeah I mean it was both a moral and a material yeah. acknowledgement of 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 enormous suffering yeah and i think this question that's often or this point that's often thrown around about dignity and the ability i you know if we go all the way back to i mean i was just a kid right <laughs> like 98 99 when i was doing all these interviews and you know everybody often and all the critiques that came in one of which was oh i paid these people to, for their interview they asked me for nothing but let me ask you they asked me for one thing though one thing what do you think it was Tell my story. Tell my story. Tell my story. I want to make sure mm. the world knows what happened to me. Mm. And you, you, that never leaves you. <laughs> this you say is, it was a personal injury case. Are there, I mean, to compare this, for example, with the sort of things that went on in Northern Ireland, you, in Northern Ireland, you get the Bloody Sunday inquiry. It's a long government-run inquiry into, into their own sins, and it's conducted by lawyers, but done very well and very professionally. Is there any sense that, there, that there's any any from the British side, proactive heart searching following this? You know, I can, I, I can't speak for those in government. What I can say is that the, the judge, it was a, it was a bench trial, um, and he was considered right of center, was visibly moved in this case. 
And what was the most striking was when in the second strikeout hearing for statute of limitations was the first time that the claimants themselves testified. In their own voices. In their own voices. Mm. And telling horrific stories of torture. And there was obviously translator. And it was at that point that the British government, the first claimant gets up, tells their story. You could hear a pin drop and you could see the judge just visibly emotionally upset by this. And the QC for the FCO gets up and says, we don't contest this happened. And the FCA is the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Commonwealth Office. Yeah. And for each of the claimants that testified, we after nothing. each one, and this gets back mm. to the point that I made earlier about why do they give us the documents documenting the document destruction? Handed it all to us. I was I was thrilled so as a what, story. So why did they? Well, let's, let's put these two together, right? Because... They admit this happened. But the question becomes on the judge waiving statute of limitations from three years to 50 plus was that the British government had to be ensured that it could have a fair trial, which meant they had to have people, witnesses, and most importantly, they had to have documentation. And what they said was this, that even though we had memos coming from London giving orders to destroy, they said, no, 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 no. Those memos might have come, but... Those colonial officers in Kenya who were acting in right of Kenya, not in right of Britain, they went overboard. So, so they, this, they yeah. destroyed more than they should have. And oh, by yeah. the way, thank you, Professor Elkins. For showing us. You yeah. put together this beautiful evidence but, but on why, document well, destruction. So what, but why are you saying so why are you saying that like, like that? Because it, some people will say this is exactly the thing that separates the British from other empires, in that there was governance, there is rule of law, there is a sense, okay, it took a long time and you had to fight for it, but a sense of fairness and paying up eventually. Um why do you say it like that as if Two things. I'd love to comment on the rule of law. Yeah. Let's stick with it in the, in the courtroom for now, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. In the courtroom, what they're saying is that actually you can't, thanks to all this work that Elkins did for us, you can't waive statute of limitations because we can't have a fair trial. These renegade officers off in Kenya, sure, we told them to get rid of some things, but they went three and a half tons. We never told them to get rid of this. Show us the document that says get rid of three and a half tons. So that was their argument. They're okay. not saying this didn't happen. They're saying we can't have a fair <clears throat> trial because of all this stuff that was got rid of. Rule of law. Hmm. That was part of the British government's defense. This was rule of law. We followed the law. There's nothing illegal here. I write about this in the new book. I call it, It's something I call legalized lawlessness. What they end up doing is that if there's an act that's committed that's illegal, there's no law in the book permitting it, what they end up doing is they write new, new codes to say, actually, that's legal. And so suddenly you have 149 pages of emergency regulations. Retrospective. Oftentimes, yes. Right? I mean, think about what happens here at Amritsar. I mean, the martial laws declare, I mean, they do it retrospectively. This happens over and over and over again. Let me just, uh, again, just uh, bring you back to, to where we are right now, where we have historians who will, uh, uh, you know, will say, okay, you know what, it is the decency of the country that eventually the right thing happened. And it is a regrettable thing. But, you know, actually in the frame of things, which other empire has ever willingly given 
recompense for the behaviors. And, you know, we weren't as bad as other empires and colonies. And you know what? It's never easy to to go in and, and take over a country. You know, th- difficult things happen. You know, there, there's, you know, there are people even now listening to this who can say partisan, so negative about the British Empire. British Empire compared to other empires, not so bad. Mm. Compare us to the Belgians. Compare us. You, you know the yeah. argument. Uh, the wretched French. Let's not forget the Let's wretched not, French. Never forget the wretched French. The Betoir, right? The wretched French. Look, um, and I think this is also, and forgive me, it's a little personal, right? Because they came to the table kicking and screaming. This was not a, oh, mea culpa, you got us. This was, if we go back to 2005, where we started our conversation, where I was just hammered. I made up stories. This is fiction. This never happened. Africans are liars. You name it. Unfortunately, that is all that we've got time for. I know a lot of you are going to want to get in touch on this one. William, remind us, what what is the email address for people who want to get in touch? EmpirePodUK at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Caroline Elkin, for your time, uh, for your expertise. We'll be back again, but until then... Well, once, once we've recovered from it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I think both of us are getting a ticket to Northumberland. <laughs> We're in those archives. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Can you imagine? Uh, so, yes, until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>